Good morning. Welcome again. Uh, I like to remind you guys every Advent that this is not just a season for looking back on Jesus' first coming, but also a season to look forward to his second coming. Uh, our sermon today is concerned quite a bit with what Jesus is preparing to do at his second coming. And I was thinking about it. If you're here and you are uh, not sure about Christianity, you're kind of skeptical about all the things we're talking about, a lot of what you're going to hear today is going to sound kind of pie in the sky, kind of wish fulfillment, kind of just, you know, we're talking about all these things that we can't see. Um, and, you know, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, uh, then we're all morons and we're all wasting our time. Uh, we should all be watching the World Cup right now. Even if you hate soccer, you'd be better off doing that. Um, everything we're talking about today about what Jesus is going to do in the future is not just because Christians don't really like the world and they want to kind of fantasize about a different world, but because Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, if you are here and you are not sure about any of this stuff, I would challenge you and I encourage you to look into whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead in history 2,000 years ago. If he did, uh, you need to believe everything that he says he's going to do in the future. If he didn't, then I'm an idiot and you don't have to listen to anything I'm saying. Second Samuel chapter 5, starting at verse 6. This is page 249, I think, somewhere around there. I looked it up and I forgot. Second Samuel 5, 6. I'm going to read a couple verses into chapter 6 just to give you a tiny bit of extra context what's happening. This is talking about King David. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking... David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shabab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Bel-Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. 
And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Jesus, it's in you that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. We ask this morning that you would reveal a few of them to us. Show us your treasures so that we might become more wise in this dark and troubling world. Help us to look forward to this great work and this great place you are preparing for your people. For we ask in your name. Amen. Many of us have been occupied for the last few weeks with preparing our homes for Christmas. Uh, Decorating, meal planning, shopping, getting up perhaps with a bit of dread uh, for people to show up at our house. Our passage this morning is about how King David is preparing a place that's going to be at the center of his kingdom, the city of Jerusalem, a city that's still all over the news for us today. The reason that Jerusalem is going to be so special for David and why it's so special for Israel even today, uh, with a lot of debate about uh, what is going on there, uh, is because it's where God was going to be special, he's going to be present in a special way. It was going to be God's home on earth. Uh, Jerusalem was where God's temple was going to be built. It hasn't been built yet, but this is where God's going to have it built. Uh, At the center of the temple is going to be a little cube-shaped room containing the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, That is, if you remember, a special gold-coated box uh, from which God had spoken to Moses a few hundred years before the life of David. Uh, And on top of this box, once a year... Uh, Israel's high priest would go in and sprinkle sacrificial blood to cover over and to deal with Israel's sins as they had been accumulating over the year. Uh, You might remember that the book of Samuel begins with Israel taking this special golden box and trying to use it as a good luck charm in their battles. Uh, And that in the battle, the Philistines capture the box, uh, but then quickly return it when God begins punishing them for misusing it, for disrespecting him by the way they're using the box. Uh, If you remember, way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel, after the Philistines send back the Ark of the Covenant, the uh, Israelites, pretty freaked out by what's just happened, they don't know what to do with it, and so they send it off to some guy's house, Uh, and so now we're at at King David, where a few decades later, it's just been collecting dust in the background. We haven't heard about it since the beginning of 1 Samuel. Uh, I read a couple verses from chapter 6 to show you that the next chapter is going to be about David bringing this box into Jerusalem so that God's people might meet with him uh, living under the rule of his king. Uh, This theme of how God can mercifully dwell in the midst of Jerusalem uh, with a sinful people is how the book of 2 Samuel is going to end. This is the final emphatic note of 2 Samuel. And then the next book in the Bible, 1 Kings, is all about how David's son Solomon builds a temple to contain this box. All of it, I think, is pointing us forward to how Jesus is currently preparing for us not the current Jerusalem, not the old Jerusalem, not the one that so many people are fighting over today, but the Bible says Jesus is preparing a new Jerusalem a heavenly Jerusalem. He's preparing it to be the kind of place where God will gladly dwell with his people for all of eternity in a new creation, a new Jerusalem to go with a new creation. 
Christians, the Bible says, are currently citizens of this new Jerusalem, even though you cannot yet see it. Uh, And the Bible ends in its second to last chapter with the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven so that the whole entire new creation becomes God's dwelling place with his people. Just before his death and his resurrection and his ascension into God's presence, Jesus told his disciples, don't worry, don't be troubled, because he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself so that you might be with me where I am. The New Testament says that Jesus' resurrection is the historical down payment on God's promise to merge the heavenly new Jerusalem into the new heavens and the new earth at the end of history. 2 Samuel 5, as we look at the life of David taking the physical city of Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 5 is showing us three ways that God's King Jesus is preparing a place for God to dwell among his people in the new Jerusalem. The first thing we see in David is how Jesus is securing a place for us. How Jesus is securing a place. Uh, We read here about David that the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Now, what's going on here? Uh, The first thing we have to understand is that the Jebusites were one of the last remaining tribes of this bigger, larger group called the Canaanites uh, who had been occupying this strip of real estate, uh, the land of Palestine, the land of Israel. They were one of the last remaining tribes among the Canaanites uh, that God had promised to Abraham. And God said to Abraham, 800 years before the life of David, God tells Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove all these tribes that are here. I'm going to take the land that's currently theirs. And because I own the entire earth, I'm the landlord of the universe. I'm going to kick them out and I'm going to give it to you. I'll give it to you and your descendants. You can have it instead. Uh, so that's a promise that God makes to Abraham 800 years before the life of David. The Jebusites are one of the last remaining groups that God had specifically said, I'll kick them out so that you can have it instead. A few hundred years after God makes that promise to Abraham, uh, the people of Israel have been in slavery in Egypt, and they uh, finally get out of there through what's called the Exodus. They take a long detour through the wilderness, and then God leads them in the conquest of this promised land under the leadership of a guy named Joshua. Uh, Except they didn't really finish the job. Uh, They didn't really trust God, and so they left some of the Canaanites there, even though God said, no, uh, get rid of all of them, kill all of them. Uh, it's okay, you can do it. Uh, it's my land anyways. These people are very evil people, and I have decided it's time for their lives to end, just like he decides when everybody's life ends. Uh, but the people of Israel uh, did not uh, obey. They didn't trust God, and so they left some of them there, including the Jebusites here in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and so the city of, has never been captured by the Israelites. It's never belonged to any of the tribes of Israel. It's this city on top of a couple of mountains that's a real fortress. It's a holdout. They've never been able to get rid of it, even though it's been surrounded by Israelites this whole time. This is why they are mocking David when he shows up. Uh, it's a lot like the scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where you have the Frenchman mocking King Arthur and his guys. I won't quote any of it in case it offends some of you. But they're basically saying to David, you are so pathetic... Uh, And our stronghold is so mighty that even if we posted disabled people as our guards, there's still nothing that you could do about it. Okay, so it's trash talking. This is what's going on. But verse 7, David says, it says that David took the stronghold of Zion, and that is the city of David. 
uh, like Jesus would, David begins his career in Bethlehem and ends it in a city called Jerusalem. David gets into Jerusalem through this clever stratagem involving the use of a hidden water shaft, which is actually still there to this day. You can go see it if you want. David and his men, as weak and as powerless as they initially appeared, are able to get into the city and defeat those who mockingly referred to themselves as the blind and the lame. Uh, Some of you were maybe troubled to hear David say that he hates them. Uh, It doesn't mean that David hates disabled people. We'll see in a few chapters uh, David's great love and affection toward a disabled man. Uh, Rather, what this means is that David is steadfastly opposed to these people because they are so defiantly opposed to him. Uh, This is what the Bible means when it says that God loves Jacob but hates his brother Esau. It's what David means in the Psalms when he says that God hates all evildoers. That's Psalm 5. Uh, It's what David means when he defends himself in Psalm 139 by saying to God, Don't I hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them with complete hatred. Uh, Pretty troubling to us today. It sounds pretty extreme. Does it mean that we should be bitter or mean or spiteful towards anybody, even our enemies? No, of course not. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for them, bless them. Uh, There is a great deal of truth in the saying that we should love the sinner and hate the sin. Uh, That's not actually a biblical quote, but it's getting at a pretty biblical idea. And we do need to remember how easily our own anger becomes sinful and selfish and often masquerades as though it were something righteous. But at the same time, uh, we're not here. I'm not here to make excuses for God or for what he says in the Bible. There is a real sense in which we should hate. That means be steadfastly opposed to. We should hate those who revel in their rebellion against God and against his king. David is doing it here because God does it, and therefore because God does it, Jesus also does it. David is securing a place for God's presence by conquering it and casting out God's enemies. You read in verse 10 that David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The key to David's success and glory is that the Lord is with him. It's that the Lord's behind him. And this is even more true for Jesus, uh, who at Advent, we remember, was called Emmanuel, God with us. He's God in the flesh. And just like David works mightily to fulfill God's promise about securing a place for his people, so also Jesus works mightily to fulfill God's promise to secure this creation and to purge it from all evil and sin and suffering. Now remember, it took 800 years from when God promised Abraham, I'll give this land to you, I'll get rid of the Jebusites. It took 800 years until that actually happened when David goes into the city here. Uh, If something took 800 years to happen, I might become pretty discouraged. That might look pretty hopeless to me. Uh, In Jesus, God really is keeping his promises, even if it takes a very long time, even if the outcome looks very hopeless. Uh, We get frustrated and wigged out if our phones stop working for five minutes. Sometimes God's promises take centuries and centuries, generations and generations to fulfill. So we should be encouraged today, no matter how much moral insanity or social chaos we see around us, no matter uh, how ridiculous the church might appear to the world, 
no matter how long or painful our suffering might be, no matter when or how you die. We should be encouraged because God's promise still stands. He will keep it. The Apostle Paul says that in Jesus, the answer to all of God's promises is yes. By God's forgiving grace, Jesus is securing your home in the new creation. Just before his death, Jesus said that the world was about to be judged, that its satanic ruler was about to be cast out, just like David cast out the Jebusites. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says that Jesus is currently reigning right now. Jesus is reigning over the universe. Paul says he's putting all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He says God has put all things in subjection under his feet. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says it like this. He describes the Christian's future resurrection in terms of being a citizen of a city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the polis, they, they called it back then. Uh, in the ancient world, your citizenship was not to a big giant empire or to a nation, it was to a city. Uh, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, the new Jerusalem. And from it, we await a savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So you see what Paul is saying there. Uh, Jesus, by his death-destroying power that he used to raise himself from the dead in history, with that same power, Jesus is currently ruling over the world. He's securing his creation for his people so that it might be an eternal home for us when he returns in glory. You also see in this passage... Not only that David, and by David I mean Jesus, uh, securing a home for God's people, but also you see David, and to a greater extent Jesus, also beautifying a place. So he's securing a place, but he's also beautifying a place. Uh, look at verse 11. We hear that the pagan king of a wealthy city named Tyre hears about David's success, and he sends him materials and workers to construct for himself a glorious palace. Uh, we are perhaps here getting a little bit of a glimpse of the later biblical promises that at the end of history, the climax of history, the nations will be streaming into Jerusalem with all of their wealth, offering it to God and to his purposes. Uh, this is the prophet Isaiah, a few hundred years after David, says this, In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and all the nations shall flow to it. At the end of his book, Isaiah says this, The wealth of the nations shall come to you, speaking of Jerusalem. The book of Revelation picks up on this imagery at the end of the Bible. Uh, it ends with the vision of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, as a city in which, into which the kings of the earth will bring their glory. And so what this means is that heaven and the new creation is going to be a place and a city of splendor. Everything good, everything glorious about this world and our work and our wealth and our art and our cultures, it will all be transposed into an eternally beautiful key. It will be a beautiful place. Second Samuel chapter 5, look at verse 12. Uh, in this friendship, in this generosity from this pagan king, David is seeing that the Lord has established him king over Israel. He sees, he's understanding that God has exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel, not for David's sake, but for the people's sake. Uh, David's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not really supposed to be about him or his status or his glory, 
But ultimately, uh, David and Jesus get glory as they do good for God's people. It's about what doing what's right for his subjects. Uh, this is true of David, and it's much more true of Jesus. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke that he didn't come to act like the self-absorbed and the virtue-signaling leaders of the nations, but rather he came to serve, not to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, the next couple of verses tell us that David's family is growing, but we're told again that David is picking up more wives. And now also for the first time, we hear that David is picking up concubines. Uh, this is another one of those prickling reminders that David is not ultimately the king that we need. Uh, for all of his virtues, he too is marred by sin. Because like we've said, David ha- or God had explicitly said that Israel's kings were not to ever multiply their wives, let alone concubines. We're going to eventually see that David's propensity for taking women is going to ruin his credibility. It's going to just about destroy his kingdom. Uh, In this little exchange about the king sending a bunch of wealth to David to build a palace, uh, we may also be getting a little bit of a warning uh, because this kind of thing is going to ruin David's son Solomon. Uh, Later on, the Old Testament prophets are going to denounce Israel's kings for their reliance on political alliances and for their fixation on building luxurious houses for themselves and their friends. Uh, It's perhaps a little bit of a warning about the dangers of hitching the church's wagon to political leaders and political institutions, even if it initially appears to benefit us, even if it makes us feel like we're important and secure and effective. But that's really a different sermon for a different day on a different passage. God's king secures his place. God's king beautifies his place. But now I also want you to see that God's king protects his place. God's king protects his place. Uh, Look at verse 17. You have two attacks now by the fearsome Philistines. They're this group that showed up later than the Canaanites, uh, but eventually came to dominate the whole area. The people of Israel had demanded to have a king at the beginning of 1 Samuel because they wanted a human king instead of God to fight their battles against these Philistines. Uh, Saul, when he was appointed as the first king, he was explicitly charged to defeat the Philistines, but he largely failed to do it, uh, even though we saw a much younger David slaying the champion warrior of the Philistines. That's the story about David and Goliath. Uh, Later on, when David becomes very afraid of Saul's plots against him, David takes up refuge among the Philistines. Uh, But then at the end of 1 Samuel, they kick him out right before they crush Saul and his army, uh, which was the last time we've heard about him in the narrative, heard about the Philistines. Uh, So now that David has united the tribes of Israel, the Philistines are a little worried. And so they go out to crush David just like they crushed Saul. You see in verse 19 that David leans on the Lord's word and on his guidance. He asks God, do you want me to go up against them? Here's this giant army coming up against him. And David says, well, what do you think, God? Should I go fight them? Uh, And if I go fight them, will you defeat them before me? And God says to him, well, yes, you should go up. And yes, I will defeat them for you. David meets them in battle. He's victorious, but he knows that it was really the Lord who was fighting for him. He says in verse 20 that God has burst out like a roaring flood. In verse 21, you hear that the panicked Philistines abandon their lifeless idols on the battlefield, uh, whom they have probably brought with them as a good luck charm, just like Israel had done back in the day when they brought the ark with them as a good luck charm. Uh, Interestingly, we last heard about the Philistines' idols 
at the very end of 1 Samuel, uh, when the Philistines had slain Saul and his army and his sons. And, it, and the text tells us that the Philistines went back home to announce the good news about killing Saul to their idols. But like our own false gods, like our own semi-Christs always do, in the end, the Philistines' idols are powerless to save them. No matter how much confidence they put in them, no matter how much they sacrificed for them. It's the same for us today. Your health and your wealth, your education, building your life around your family and your happiness and your success, in the end, all those things will disappoint you. They will all betray you. They will be lifeless, dead on the battlefields of life. But like most people who have been jilted by their idols, the Philistines do not reconsider their opposition to God's king. They, like most people, just keep fighting him. Verse 22, you hear that they return to the same area. Even so, David still does not say, oh, I've seen this movie before. I've already talked to God about this. I know what to do. Uh, No need to pray. No need to rely on God. Uh, David still relies on the Lord. He still asks what he should be doing. God says, yes, you should go fight them again, but don't do it in the same way. Here's a different way to do it. David's to flank them this time, and before he goes out to fight, he's to wait until he hears a certain sound in the trees as a sign that God is the one who has gone before him to fight on his behalf. Uh, It's true. Literally, yes, David still has to swing a sword. He still has to chop off Philistine heads. But the point is that God is the one who's really behind his victory. That unlike the disastrous Saul, David knows that he needs to depend on God and on his word. Remember, that was the, 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 the point with Saul. Saul thought he knew better. He thought he didn't need God. We need to do this also. We need to see that what makes Jesus such a wonderful king is that to a much greater extent than David, he's always doing and he's always saying exactly what God wants. There's no question about whether or not what Jesus says or does is God's will. David protects his place from external threats and enemies. And Jesus, of course, is doing this at a much deeper level. Jesus promises that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. And in the letter to the Hebrews, we're told that as citizens of the new Jerusalem, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What wonderful, comforting news in a world where so much is shaking. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, your life and your hope and your true home are totally secure. Jesus has gone before us to prepare prepare a place for us. He secures it. He's beautifying it. He's protecting it. And so let's finish now with some of the Bible's final words on what makes this future home for us so wonderful. This is from the book of Revelation. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Father, in the Lord Jesus, you are making all things new. Give us the eyes of faith to see that, even in this valley of the shadow of death. 
where it is so often so hard to trust you. It is so hard to believe that our true home is not here, but it's yet to come. Help us, Lord, to live for that future home. And as we live for that future home, may we be faithful in this home. May we serve you with gladness. May we be faithful to you in the midst of suffering. May we go to our deaths with great faith, knowing that you will bring us through. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.